0: listening to Cooper Talk. Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper, and remember, I'm only as hip as my guest. I'm going to tell you something, people. Joanne and myself were filling out our application for our wedding license, or whatever it's called, wedding certificate. And it was funny because, now we live in New Jersey, so it should be basic, straight up. You know, it says, you know, my parents' name, her parents' name. I had to give the first name and last name of my ex-wife and when we were divorced. But then it actually asked if the two of us were related. Okay, now what I understand is we live in New Jersey. Cousins aren't marrying cousins. We just laugh and I'm thinking when we go down to get the uh, actual license, we should answer the question yes, just to see how they react. Anyway, we have a great show today. Uh, my guest is a, I don't know if we call him, he can make clear it up if we're, if we're fellow New Jerseyans or New Jerseyites. He was also in a band that I loved, who sing one of my favorite songs, and I used to listen to him in, when I lived in LA, and I always wanted to go to the place where he was live, I believe it was in Huntington Beach, doing Sunday Brunch, and my guest is Chris Carter. How you doing, Chris? Hey,
1: Steve. How
0: you doing? I'm doing good. So you're, you're a New Jersey guy. Would you say it's a new, we're New Jerseyans or New Jerseyites?
1: Oh, gee. A Jersey question, right off the top. Jersey, I guess I never used either of them myself, but I guess that might be, you know, grammatically more correct. Okay. <laughs> Jersey boys, we are.
0: Okay. There you go. Now, now, growing up in uh, New Jersey, you you started playing bass. I'm not sure at what age. What made you get into music? Was it was it just because music was all around New Jersey, or how, what was your driving force to get you into career of music?
1: I don't know, I just loved it from the first time I heard. I guess I loved rock and roll more than just music per se, though I enjoy all forms of music. But yeah, I mean it was just the typical stuff. It was it was my love of rock and roll and when we were kids, you know, I was uh, born in 1959, so you know, 67, 68, 69, it was all AM radio before fm and that was back when you know a band like the beatles or the stones or Credence or whomever would put their best songs out as singles you know you, you know as time progressed usually you didn't like the singles you liked the album tracks but back then so you know radio was just great especially like 50 years ago in 1969 my favorite year for am radio every, every song was was good you look at the top 40 in 1969, and it was just like Honky Tonk Woman and The Beatles, and it was just a great time. So that's what, you know, got me into rock and roll, and then as the 70s progressed and I got to be a high school guy, I really got into British rock and roll. Um, I was like... The only kid in my high school with T-Rex and David Bowie and the Hoople and Slade records. I was really into that stuff. So, yeah, I mean, it was always, uh, it was the music, though, more than anything else. Not, you know, I didn't collect, you know, beetle wigs and stuff like that. I was just all about the music.
0: <laughs> well, it's funny, you know, you talk about the music. And you're right, I, I was born in uh, '63. And you know, I remember when that Kiss album, Rock and Roll, came over. Rock and Roll, I believe, forever whatever it was called, came out. There was Rock a Rock and Roll Over. Yeah, and there was that. There was that sticker in it, and you would put the sticker on your notebook, and that meant you were cool and you were a Kiss fan.
1: Right. Exactly. You were in the Kiss Army. <laughs> I saw Kiss, believe it or not, before the first album came out. <laughs> That's how I go back with Kiss.
0: Now, where did you see him at?
1: Joint in the woods. You remember the joint in the woods?
0: I'm. I, I grew up near. I grew up near Philadelphia, so I. I didn't. I wasn't up near. There was Dallas.
1: a place in New Jersey that was literally in the woods, and you'd park your car, and then they would take you on a horse and a buggy to the club. <laughs> it was nutty. Um, that didn't last very long, but all these cool bands played there. And like the week the Kiss album came out, they were out there. And then they saw them at the Capitol Theater, I think, a week after the first album came out. Nineteen seventy four. It was great because you know we we kind of you know didn't know what to expect when we when we saw them, and it was like of all the bands I ever saw. That you know it sounds like kid stuff now, but it really did affect me as a thirteen year old. You know the uh, the power of you know combining visuals with rock and roll. I really love that.
0: Now, now you said you know in high school you were, you were drawn to the British Invasion of British bands. What do you think? Drew you to them because we did have some great American bands. I mean, it's not like
1: oh, were we had laughing. great American. I love Alice Cooper. I mean, I love the American bands, but there was something about the British bands—just um, the sound of their style. That they, you know, they had this little British thing going. Especially if you sang like you were from England, like you know, like the Kinks and Bowie and those guys really emphasized that they were a Brit- different thing. And plus, nobody knew about it here. And there's always a certain you know, fascination about liking something that everybody else, like nobody else in my high school that I hung out with, you know, were listening to these records. They were listening to Black Sabbath and Led Zeppelin and the big stuff. And I was listening to this, like, glam records, you know, these glam records. And uh, I don't know, there was just something catchy about it. I loved it. It was just, uh, the music was great. And these guys looked really cool, too. That was another thing.
0: Now, what? when did you start actually playing an instrument?
1: Uh, I started playing bass, I guess, 7th um, grade, 6th grade, 7th grade. Yeah, I was I played in every school I attended in a band. I, I played uh, at Preakness School in Wayne in the 6th grade, and I played uh, Skylar Colfax in the 8th grade in Wayne as well, and then Wayne Hills High School, where I graduated in 1977. So, yeah, I was always a musician. I always played in different bands.
0: Now... I heard when Dramaw- Rama formed, it formed at a record store that you owned. Now, how did you own a record store at, at a young age?
1: <laughs> well, I always wanted to have a record store. That was like a dream of mine. And I managed the Corvette's record department in the Willowbrook Mall in Wayne, which square footage-wise was, believe it or not, I know this sounds like a crazy statement, but it was the biggest record store in the country because square foot square footage, it, it was bigger like, the Tower Records, it was bigger than Sam Booty's, it was bigger than any record store because they had a betting department downstairs and they cleared that out and they just made it record. So it was literally the bottom floor of this huge store. And I was the manager at like 19 years old. And long story short, I gave a customer a discount because I was allowed to as the manager. This guy bought like $300 worth of classical records. So I gave him a discount. I sold them to him for like 50 bucks. And the genius security team at Corvettes was watching me. And they thought I was giving this guy free records, right? They're like, oh, we caught him. So these, these little like, you know, Joe Fridays come down and they arrest, they literally put handcuffs on me and walk me through the store and I took him to court because I was in the union. And we sued them, and I was correct because in the owner's, you know, in the manager's manual, it says you can mark down any any product that's over five years old, and it was over five years old. So I sued them, and I got $10,000. And I took (laughs) that money, and I bought a head shop in the Packinac Lake little strip mall there on Route 23 in Wayne, and that became Looney Tunes Records, and we ran Looney Tunes into the ground. Now we ran Looney Tunes um, from 79 to 82, and that's where Dramarama started in the basement of Looney Tunes sometime about 1982. And Looney Tunes was great because we had all of our rock and roll heroes there. We used to do in stores as they used to call them. So all the guys and the bands we loved, like I loved Mott the Hoople, so we had Ian Hunter, and I loved David Bowie, and we had Mick Ronson, Ian Hunter and Mick Ronson, who were a team back then. We had the Ramones in store, we had the Plasmatics, we had Uncle Floyd, <laughs> we were the Uncle Floyd show headquarters. We we sold the only place you could buy Uncle Floyd stuff, and people would come from,
0: like, Connecticut to buy, like, a, you know, a Bones Boy T-shirt or some crazy Uncle Floyd character. Oogie. Did Did you have Oogie stuff?
1: Oogie, Oogie. Floyd got engaged to his wife... On his knee in front of the Ramon section in our store, because that's where he met her, and uh, we had we had a great connection with the Uncle Floyd show. So, and that's how we got all the cool bands to know about our store, because they all watched Uncle Floyd, like David Johansson from the Dolls and the Ramones. They all they all knew Looney Tunes because we used to put commercials on the Uncle Floyd show. So,
0: so, when did you decide to start to get the band together? I mean, and I heard you practice after hours, or.
1: We, we started the band in 82, we started making records in 84, uh, we made our first single, and then we, we sent our stuff to a French label called New Rose Records, it was a really, was a really cool label because it had like all the bands we liked from America, like the Cramps and the Replacements and Johnny Thunders and all that kind of stuff. And they signed us, and that was really where our first album came out in France as an import. And then this DJ out in Los Angeles, Rodney Dingenheimer, bought our record, because Edie Sedgwick was on the cover, and he liked her. And he started playing this one song from the album, Anything Anything, on his show, Rodney on the Rock, which is like this legendary radio show. And we were still living in Wayne, and we heard Rodney was playing our record, and we were freaking out. And then the radio station he was on, the biggest radio station in L.A., at the time, K-Rock, started to play our song, and it became number one, the most requested song on the station, so we said, let's go to California, (laughs) so we, you know, we were playing strip bars in Cotto New Jersey, it wasn't really happening for us, Uh, so we went to California, and uh, we played, we sold out the Roxy, and then the next day, we were on the radio, and they said, hey, you want to open for the Psychedelic Furs at Irvine Meadows, and we were like, sure, what's that, and then we went and saw Irvine Meadows, and it was this, like, big, giant stadium place, (laughs) we were like, wow, let's live here. So we told our parents, hey, we're not coming home, because (laughs) we're on the radio and we're playing at the Irvine Meadows Amphitheater, so we're not coming home till Christmas. So we just stayed out here, and I've been out here ever since.
0: Now, uh, when you moved out there, you said you'd started on a different label. When did an American label pick you up?
1: Well, we put out... um, we put out the first record that was on the French label um, on our own, and then we got picked up um, for the second album, Box Office Bomb, and we were on a label called Chameleon, and they were through Capitol Records, and we made a couple of records for them, and then we got signed to Elektra, um, which is really cool, because that was really a major label. That was, like, the first time we actually got to benefit and we we'll feel the benefits of what it's like to be on a label where you get a little tour support and you get a tour bus and you know you get to make a couple of videos and you know it was what we had strived for our whole career and then of course we broke up so yeah you know. <laughs>
0: now what, what what was your experience with videos cuz i talked to a lot of musicians that you know i we're both at the age where videos were so impactful. I mean, uh, we watched MTV and everything. left and right.
1: Looking back at videos, because I was just talking to somebody about it, 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 looking back now, it's the most ridiculous thing ever because what happened was the videos became almost more important than the album. And what really happened, that really drove the record business down into a hole was these you know, one-year veterans <laughs> of making videos. We're charging bands, like, $100,000, 95000 hundred, whatever, to make these videos. So you have a song, and then you're going to go spend, you know, seventy-five grand on some video, which costs more than the whole album costs to make, to make this video that you hope they're going to play on 120 minutes on Sunday night. And, you know, what happened was the bands all wanted videos. So they would say, we'll make a video. Well, uh, Sophie Miller charges, uh, she just did the, uh, Smashing Pumpkins, and, uh, if you want her, she drew out a little sketch. I remember I'd be looking at these sketches, these blueprints, and again, these people had been in the business for, like, you know, 15 minutes making videos, (laughs) and all of a sudden they're charging bands $90,000. So, of course, the bands wanted to do the videos, and you know, they'd be in the hole for all this money. And, you know, while the videos were fun and everything, you owed the record company that money later. So it got to be a little crazy. And of course, now you can make a video on your phone and you could make a cool video for probably $10.
0: So
1: it's so silly, because these people were using film, you know, they all thought they were Stanley Kubrick making these three minute, Pop videos, you know, and uh, it was crazy, but it was fun because it was another way for people to see you, you know. And if you were a visual band, if you were good looking, if you were, you know, girls or whatever, uh, you had a certain appeal to a certain audience, it was really good, um, you know. But again, it was just so, it was so crazy expensive.
0: Now, now, what do you think made you guys? hit in the beginning when you did. And I know you ended up being playing Letterman and Dennis Miller and stuff oh, like that. A sec.
1: I'm so sorry. The phone's just going to keep ringing. Okay. Hold on. Steve, I'm back. Sorry about that. Oh, no problem.
0: So what do, you, what do you think made you guys hit it when you did? Because was it the help of Rodney or was it just because your sound was different? Because there was a lot yeah. of, you know, at the time it wasn't, alternative as we used to call it or new wave was becoming big but you guys are a little bit harder than that i think
1: yeah we had whatever it was it was just, you know it was this song in the beginning uh anything anything and it's like you said it was a weird time for music because you know we were on a channel that we broke on you know which was heavy into depeche mode and the cure and all sorts of things but they also played you know x and the ramones so we fit in there somehow and yeah, we had a hard edge. We were definitely a guitar band, uh, in a world of synthesizers in nineteen eighty six. And I think that might have been something that stuck out. It was so different, you know, in between whatever they were playing at the time, be it Lovin' Rockets or the Cure or whatever, Bauhaus, whatever they were playing, um, you know, it had this this just energy to it. And I think, you know, obviously the bass playing was Exquisite. So everybody was jumping on that. Um, just kidding, because I was the bass player. Um, <laughs> so there was just something about it. And the weirdest thing, Steve, is here we are in 2019, and that song is on the radio three or four times every day in LA. Still, doesn't doesn't matter the year when they played in the morning, they play it in the afternoon, they played it at night on various stations. Not only just K rock, it's the weirdest thing in the world for a song that came out in nineteen
0: eighty six. Well I know it's it's yeah. one of it's one of my favorite songs. I love I love that song. And when you tell people, you know, hey, you know that song by Drama a lot of times it's like what and then when you say, Listen, they go right, they Oh, the I love song. that song. They
1: don't know the band. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, what was it what, what happens?
0: what was it what was it like playing on Letterman?
1: Letterman was great. I mean, I remember we weren't allowed to talk to Dave. That was one of the things that always sticks up. Don't talk to Dave if he comes down the hall, whatever you do. And I also remember it was freezing cold, which was cool. I guess Dave doesn't like to, uh, you know, sweat or anything. And I also remember I couldn't play the bass, because you had to play with Paul and the band. So, it was always weird. Like, R.E.M. would come on, or some band would come on, and you'd... you'd, you'd see them playing the bongos or something, because the other guy, cause they needed to have the house band play with you. So I did play the congas on uh, Haven't Got a Clue, which was the song we played on, on Dave. I had to be on, you know, I wasn't going to, like, not be on, and they had their band there, so it was, like, so weird, you know, we didn't even use our drummer.
0: Well, now, one thing that you can tell you're from New Jersey and the Tri-State area is your band was on the Joe Franklin Show
1: that's right thank you we were one of the highlights of our career my i have tapes phone tapes of me calling the joe franklin show trying to get on for like six months and the phone calls i could make an album with just these phone calls on a jerky boys level but we weren't goofing on joe we were serious but the 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 rigmarole that they would put you through. Joe had this crazy assistant that would answer the phone. He was like, this, these guys are like old school showbiz, like 40s, 50s guys. Like, hello? And I'm like, yeah, this is uh, Chris Carter from a band. We're Drama Rama. We're called Drama Rama from New Jersey. And uh, we, we love Joe, and we were wondering if we could get on the show. Drama Rama. Let me write this down. <laughs> and then you get these. Call Joe tomorrow at four. Four. And then I'd write it down. Okay, we'll call Joe tomorrow at four. And then the next day it's four o'clock. Hello? Hey, yeah, this is Chris Carter from the band Drama We called yesterday. He said to call at four to talk to Joe. Drama, drama, Let me see. Joe is at the doctors. It was the greatest thing. This went on for hours. <laughs> yeah, you <laughs> like, need you need to we got on the
0: show. You need to release it on YouTube. Because I gotta tell you, everybody from New Jersey, our age, or from the New York area, loves Joe Franklin. I talked to comics who like their first performance was in Joe yeah, Franklin and it was, it was such show because they'd have like a psychic on a juggler and Bill Cosby. Right. <laughs> like,
1: some like you know these most local random people. It was great, and they and they play your song, and they while you're sitting in, you know, you're sitting on the chair next to Joe, and they play your song, and then they have a, and you wouldn't do it. You'd just be sitting in the chair, and then the camera would go close up to your face while they're playing your song, and you're just sitting in the chair. <laughs> no, you don't know what to do. Oh, okay. You don't sing along. You're not playing. They're just playing your song. So so you trip.
0: you're on that show. You're on you know Letterman. You're on you you're. you're Career is going well. What ended up making you guys disband or break up? You never know, was, this, was it because grunge was coming in or were you guys just
1: tired of no, each other? actually, we were happy about that. That was good for us, grunge was coming in because we were a guitar band. We were happy. We were like, wow, finally, guitars are back. Um, it was just a succession of bummers, as they say. We were on the road. We were doing a tour. It was an OK tour. Um, you know, it's tough out there because when you leave the areas you're big in, L.A., Houston, whatever, and you gotta go cut through Nebraska and Tennessee, you know you're not playing the big places, especially at that point. This is pre-internet. You know, it was like word of mouth, hits, magazines, a couple of magazines, and you know MTV, 120 minutes. That's all you had, and of course radio. So it was a little tough. We were we weren't depressed, but things were going. Okay, but we were happy because the last show of this tour was gonna to be at the Hollywood Bowl and we were gonna play with Duran Duran and the cranberries and we were in the middle slot, so it was a good slot and it was a big payday for us. So that was kind of the light at the end of the tunnel. And we were we had probably a week and a half before the Hollywood Bowl show and we found out that our record company and Elektra had split and we were no longer going to be on Elektra records. And we were very, very depressed. And then the next day we found out that Simon Le Bon from Duran Duran had laryngitis and they canceled the Hollywood Bowl show. <laughs> so now we had no record label and no Hollywood Bowl show within 48 hours. And- you know, we were all wound up young men, and we were all just so frustrated and depressed. Because when you love something the way we loved being in the band, and the, we loved the music, we loved the business and everything, when bad things happen, you know, in succession, you can really react because it's so close to you. You know, and, you know, if we didn't care about the Hollywood Bowl and we didn't care about being on the label, it wouldn't have affected us. But we knew how much of a drag that was. And then we just broke up. I think we just like, we came home from the tour and we were all just, we had no label. We didn't play the Hollywood Bowl. We were just so bummed out. And uh, you know, it was a long time ago. I can't really remember all the details, but that's the gist of it.
0: So you guys break up and I just said, you guys were friends, you know, from back in the New Jersey days. So you really knew each other. And I think when, when you're in a band with friends, there's a closeness and a bond. So when you break up, what is your mindset? Because all of a sudden, even though you're friends, there's a different, com- you know, camaraderie because you're not in the exactly, band. What exactly.
1: S- exactly. Well, it's, you, can, you can you can compare it to a relationship. Really, it's like it's like a relationship, a personal relationship. But you had. A personal relationship with all these different guys and of course when you're in any group, the group dynamic is always a couple of guys are thinking one thing and the other couple of guys are thinking another thing. One guy might be on his own thinking something else. So it's, it's a weird setup and right after it happens, you know, You know, you don't really talk to each other. Not that you're fighting, but you just don't really, because it's just, what are you going to talk about? You're just bummed out. It's the way Paul was after he left the Beatles. You know, you get depressed, because this is something you were doing, you know, for the last, whatever, 10 years of your life or more. You're 110% dedicated to it. That's all you've done. And that's the only association people know you with. Oh, it's Chris from Rama, Oh, it's John from Rama, That's who you are. And now you're not that anymore in the band over and you feel, you know, you feel like, you know, you're down. You feel like, you don't feel like a loser. You just feel depressed no matter what the circumstances because you've lost. It's like a loss. It's like losing your, your mate, but you lost all of them. And, uh, you know, we stayed close. And then there was this crazy VH1, Band's Reunited show, which got our band back together for the first time in 10 years, and we actually played a concert, and uh, after that, the singer said, let's, you know, he wanted to still be in drama, he wanted to start Rama up again, and I didn't, because I was, had another career going on, so John and I had a meeting, and I said, yeah, go ahead, be Rama. get some more guys. Because sure. he didn't have anything else to do. I had a radio career I started. So that's the way that ended. No. So we're still very close. We, Me and John are closer than ever. Because we still do business because we own the song and the first two records together. Um, so they're always using Anything Anything on all sorts of crazy TV shows. Like we were just on this sci-fi show. Um, I can't think of the name right, right now, but you know they used our song as like the trailer to their show,
0: so you yeah. know. So, so the band the band breaks up, and you start this other career. How do you start your new career? And was were you a DJ first? What got you into that? I mean, and how did you? What roads led you to that?
1: I went to the Connecticut School of Broadcasting, my friend. If you listen to <laughs> rock and roll radio in the seventies, if you listen to any W or PLJ I used to hear the commercials for the Connecticut School of Broadcasting. And uh I went there, because back then, in the 70s, you actually had to have a third-class license before you could get on the radio. You had to take this big test about, you know, megahertz and kilowatts and things. And, uh, so I went to the Connecticut School of Broadcasting, which is really cool because it was all these kids, all these, you know, guys and girls from Boston, Connecticut, New York, and they all talk like this. So they would teach these guys, who wanted to be sportscasters, you know, they would teach you how to enunciate and sound like you're from the Midwest. You can't have any regional dialect. So like, uh, Marv Albert was one of our teachers and stuff like that. It was pretty cool, actually. Um, the Connecticut School of Broadcast. I should call them and tell them that uh, I've hit the big time now. Maybe yeah. Maybe they'll put, put my picture up there in the hallway or something. Um, so I always loved radio, and I was the guy in they would send uh, to do the radio interviews as a rule. Because I just loved radio. I just liked going to radio stations. Ever since I was like a kid, I always thought that was the coolest thing. More than TV, I just thought radio was always interesting when they would show you uh, Wolfman Jack and American Graffiti, you know? He's up there in the middle of the night. I always thought that was like, that's the job for me right there. I want to do that. <laughs> I want to be Wolfman Jack <laughs> all by myself playing records in this room. Eating popsicles, great. (laughs) So that's what I do now. I eat popsicles. I'm all alone in a room doing radio. Now, was your first? Dream has come true. Yeah
0: was was uh, was your first gig with K Rock? What was your first actual radio gig?
1: Well, I filled in for Rodney Dingenheimer a couple of times. Me and John did. when Rodney would go on vacation. So that was cool, and I knew I loved it then. And we would listen back to the shows, and they were fun, they were good, people liked them. And then, um, here in Los Angeles, there was a radio, you know, K-Rock was the big alternative rock and roll station, and um, sometime at the end of the 90s, um, a, a new station started, Y-107, and they were gonna be a big competition for K-Rock. And I turned them on. <laughs> they were playing anything, anything. And I said, "Oh man, they're going right after K Rock here. I, I should call these guys up. They're playing. On. I should call up and ask them for a job. Yeah, <laughs> it just sounded like a good idea." So I called up the station while they were playing anything, anything. And I said, "Hey, it's Chris Carter. I plan on that record you're playing right now. I'd love to have my own show on your new cool station." And the next thing you know, they gave me a Sunday night spot. And I, I had a show called the Chris Carter Mess. And I did that for like two or three years, I guess. And then my favorite radio show, Breakfast with the Beatles, which was on Sunday mornings in Los Angeles and hosted by Deirdre O'Donoghue. I turned that on one morning and there was no D- DJ. Deirdre, the host, had not shown up. Long story short, she had passed away and she didn't come into work. <laughs> they were just playing <laughs> Beatles records. And um, you know, your first thought is, oh my god, that's so sad. What happened to Deirdre? And then your second thought is, well, what's going to happen to Breakfast with the Beatles? You know, um, what's going to happen to the show? And another long story short, they I, I tried out for the job. They had five different DJs, and we all, every Sunday, somebody else would host it. And that went on throughout the summer. Uh, and then when it came to September, they had a vote for, you know, who was going to be the fill in DJ or the new DJ. And I won, and I got that vote. And, I've been there for 19 years now, doing that show.
0: Now, when you when you were doing the audition, do you think it helped that when you were younger, you were such a fan of the uh, English Invasion and you knew the Beatles? and Did that help oh, you? Oh, yeah. I mean, I know all
1: the information, you know, in my head. And it's just, and that's what, you know... That's what radio all comes down to, basically, is how you interpret the information you're delivering. You know, so I have all that. I'm like a walking encyclopedia, and that can be really annoying and overly geeky if you don't present the information in a in a kind of lighthearted, almost maybe humorous way. Otherwise, you come off like a real know-it-all, and I think that's really annoying for people. You know, well, Steve, you know that Abbey Road was recorded before, but 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 <laughs> you, know, you sound like a, a you know. off-putting. So I always try to be funny and at the same time play stuff and tell them things that they've never heard before about the Beatles and hopefully that combination is likable and that's the way I kind of approach it and I still do now because it's a tricky business the Beatles because you're talking to some people who are like me who know all things everything. They know every You know, every song, when it was recorded, where it was recorded, who's playing what, etc. And at the very same time, you're talking to somebody who might have one Beatles album. You know, the Beatles one. So you're talking to both people at the same time, so you really have to walk a fine line and entertain them both, you know. So it's a little tricky, but after a while, you kind of get it down.
0: Yeah, well, it's funny, because I remember I lived in L.A. I just moved back two years ago, and I remember driving and hearing Ivor Davis on your... Show and Ivor, he had just been on. Actually, I'm looking at his book right here. He had just been on Cooper Talk like a few months later, and it was cool because that's a guy who knows the Beatles.
1: Right. He's a bit. He's Ivor is interesting because he's almost like Zelig if you talk to him. He was. I didn't know all these things about him. Sometimes you have to wonder because, you know, he was. Uh, he was in the kitchen. When Robert Kennedy was shot, he was with the Beatles when he went to see, when the Beatles went to see Elvis. He was, he was in all these, he was, you know, he was in all the Manson. Right. He went to every (laughs) Manson uh, trial. But then, you know, there was one thing about Ivor, we were like, Ivor, you went to see, you were in the car with the Beatles when they went to see Elvis? That's right, Chris, I was there, I was there. Blah, 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 blah. and then we had a guy on, Jerry Schilling, who was there, Elvis' guy, you know, with the red hair, that guy, one of the Elvis mafia guys, nice. and we're like, did the Beatles come with a little British guy named Ivor? And like, he's like, no, no, the Beatles just came by themselves. And you know, so Ivor was there, he tells us he was there, but then he wasn't, there. like, it's a weird thing with Ivor, we have to, we have to put a we have to put a little lie detector thing on him to see if he's hundred percent telling the truth. Because we had him on I know really on my show this Sunday, as a matter of fact. I tease him, you know. I go, I were, you were there with the Beatles? Where were you, outside or inside?" Like, well, "I was outside. I didn't go in." "Oh, okay. You were outside." Now, just, now, just
0: now you interviewed you interviewed all the Beatles except John. What was it like interviewing Pete Best as an interviewer, as a Beatles fan, and talking to a guy who missed out on the biggest career would have, his life would have changed 8,000 times, how do you go about interviewing someone like that?
1: Well, Pete's easy, and a matter of fact, it's interesting you bring that up, that was the first interview I think we had on breakfast, but I think he might have been the first guest I ever had. Pete's interesting because he's very uh, into talking about anything about the Beatles, he doesn't You know, he doesn't mince words, he doesn't hold back. And the the most fascinating thing to this day that I recall from that interview that stayed with me is when I asked him if you have ever spoken to any of the Beatles since the day, you know, in 1961 that, you know, they let you go. And he has never spoken to any of the Beatles. And I found that to be fascinating, that there was never a night, you know, in the 1980s where Paul was smoking a joint and he said, let's call Pete Best. (laughs) (laughs) You know, just one of the Beatles might want to give him a ring, you know, just after all these years, you know, but they've never spoken to him. And even when someone from the inner circle of the Beatles passes away, like Neil Aspinall or somebody like that, um, and there's a funeral or a wake. Paul and Ringo always go separately. And, you know, like when Neil Aspinall was there, um, Pete Best was there. But Paul and Ringo knew. They <laughs> <laughs> didn't go. They did a separate thing. They don't want to run into him still. <laughs> Which is such a weird thing if you think about it. Now, now being, Damn.
0: being an Beetle, yeah. being a beetle expert, Neil hosted the host's show. What, what were your, What's your insights to each of the interviews you did with Paul, George, and Ringo?
1: Well, you know, they're all different. You have to kind of know how to approach them to get the best out of them. For instance, Ringo, you always, I always lead with, Ringo, you look fantastic. You look so good. What did you eat today? He loves that. Oh, broccoli and blueberries, Chris. <laughs> Thank you. Like, he just, you know... You don't want to ask Ringo Beatle questions, necessarily. He doesn't, you know, there's certain things you you kind of learn over the years, what they like and what they don't like, you know. You never want to ask Ringo, hey, Ringo, did you hear Paul's new album? I don't know, did you hear Paul's new album? You know, he (laughs) (laughs) he doesn't want to talk, he wants to talk about his stuff, what he's doing. So then, that's what you do with Ringo. Paul, on the other hand, will talk about anything. Paul called, uh... Paul called the same number you called me at on his birthday, and we did like 25 minutes on his birthday. And, you know, you could ask Paul literally anything, you know. The only problem is you don't want to ask them a lot of Beatle questions because they don't remember. They don't get it right, even though they're the Beatles. <laughs> you say, Paul, did you? Did you? He has a, a new song called Frank Sinatra's Party, right? It's a bonus track on his... Egypt Station album. So I'm like, that was a new thing, so I brought it up. Paul, that new song you wrote, Frank Sinatra's Party, it's great. Tell me about that. He's like, oh, you know, we were just jamming, and I started saying Frank Sinatra's Party, and then I started naming all the guests, and I was like, wow, do you remember? You remember, I said, in 1968, Frank Sinatra did a song. Uh, a parody of The Lady is a Champ, and he, uh, The Lady is a Tramp, and he called it The Lady is a Champ, and it was about Ringo's wife. What happened was, Ringo's wife Maureen was a big Frank Sinatra fan, so for her birthday, Sinatra recorded a song for her, and in the song he sings about the Beatles. You married Ringo, it could have been Paul, all these great lyrics. So I bring up the Paul. Paul you remember Frank Sinatra did that song he didn't even know what I was talking about (laughs) and this song is legendary in Beatles fandom because they made an acetate of it and it was Apple Records number one it was the Frank Sinatra song to Maureen was Apple one and Mary Hopkins those were the days was Apple two as a result of that so every Beatle geek knows this story but Paul had no clue what I was talking about. So I'm literally playing it to him over the phone. I go, listen, Frank Sinatra says Paul right here. He's like, wait, Frank Sinatra mentions me? I'm like, yeah, listen, we've been listening to this song for, you know, 50 years. He never heard it. And I had to hear Send me that. So I was like, okay. So there's a little, just a glimmer of, you know, things we think they know, they don't know because they're too busy being the
0: deals at the time. Now, what was George like?
1: George is like the funniest guy. Everything is humor. I did the All Things Must Pass interview that came out on a CD, which was my favorite album pretty much of all time. So it was a great honor to do that. And that was at a point where he had been diagnosed with cancer and then he beat it and there was this in-between point where he was actually going around and doing interviews. He came to Capitol which is where that interview was and then like I think maybe a month and a half later he was re-diagnosed with it and then it came back. So that may have been one of the last interviews ever. George is just a funny guy who, you know, is probably the least into being a Beatle, post-Beatles, you know? I mean, he... The other guys seem to want to talk about it more, will talk about it more. He doesn't look at it with the same, I don't know, love, maybe, as, as Paul and Ringo. Paul definitely loves, you know, he'll talk for hours about the Beatles, where George would rather not, I think. You can see that in the anthology, you know? Um documentary, George is always a bit, you know, he's laid back, he's a funny guy, you know, he's just, that's the way he is, and uh, that's why he's my favorite
0: Beatle. Now, now, with Breakfast and the Beatles, at one point you made a switch in stations, right, like in the middle of 2000s? Yeah,
1: yeah, the station we were, well, the station had been switching over the years, it started on a... Really legendary station here called KMET, and then uh, we went to another station and it flipped and turned to a talk station. I was that was where I was with uh, you know I was the only music station, only music show on the station. We had Howard Stern in the morning, and then we were like all talk. And Sunday mornings, I'd play the Beatles, and then I went over to KLOS, which is the classic classic rock station of Los Angeles we've been. Broadcasting since 1969, so our 50-year anniversary. So that's the station I'm on now, on uh, terrestrial radio, and then I'm on the Beatles channel Monday through Friday mornings, um, every day. So
0: now, now, how do you get your ideas for the shows you're going to play? Because, as you said, you've been doing the show for a long time. There's, there's so many, it's just so many. It's funny when you talk about the Beatles. They, they didn't release nearly as many albums as most people think.
1: Right. Especially if you just look at the British releases, releases which is what they really intended you to hear. You know, the Capitol <laughs> Records was so crazy, you know, they would just put random songs, you know, from the last two albums all together on one album. And the Beatles would come to America and they wouldn't know what songs were on those albums. They'd go, you know, this is from, uh, Beatles 9. Cause they didn't know. <laughs> they didn't even know what was on these albums. Uh, so yeah, the way I keep it fresh, you know, it's pretty easy. I look at everything in a daily You know, I I look at it whatever the day is. So if it's, uh, for instance, August 20th, you know, was yesterday. What happened? Oh, well, it was the last time all four Beatles were together at EMI Studios, right, 50 years ago. So then I, you know, that's a set of music, okay? They were there to mix I Want You, She's So Heavy. So then I do that. I see what else is happening. Who's born? Oh, the girl in the bangles was born today. Bangles were on the show once. And they did this great cover of, yes it is, happy birthday, Debbie Peterson. You know, so it's like, what's happening on that day? What's happening in this, you know, whatever it is. If it's the first day of summer, if it's, uh, whatever. I can build sets around this stuff, and it's just the way to keep it fresh. For songs people have heard, you know, a thousand times, you know. You want to put a song into some perspective. You know, here's Old Brown Shoe. Now, George is playing the bass on this song, Paul's playing the tap piano. You just say that, it, it creates a little image for someone before they hear Old Brown Shoe. You tell them it's the flip side of the ballad of John and Yoko. You tell them it was recorded right before the guy started doing the Abbey Road album. That's enough, you know? 30-40 seconds, little bit of information, move on. And that keeps it interesting and it makes that song, it, it puts it in some perspective for somebody instead of just playing the song and hearing it for the umpteenth time with no perspective, you know.
0: Now, do so you, that's kind of what we do. Now do you run into a lot of, you know, Beatles superfans who wanna challenge you on your knowledge of the Beatles? Does that ever happen to you?
1: Sometimes, um, rarely, because maybe more in the beginning, you know. Um, though it didn't really happen, but you can kind of tell, um, but I think I've, over 20 years now, people learn to not mess with me, because I will take them down if they (laughs) want (laughs) to (laughs) start. Like, you know, people are a little weird sometimes, like, I'll give you an example, um, if you go to Wikipedia, and you put, She Said, She Said by the Beatles, you type it in, right? And then you look at personnel, it says George Harrison, base. And I argue with people all the time that say this is because they read it on Wikipedia or they read it in some book. And I say, you know, that's not George on bass, she said. She said, that's Paul. And they'll say, no, 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 I read that. And then I'll say, you know, this is where it gets fun. I'll say, okay, well, let's go back to the recording of that. You know what day it was recorded? And they'll go, well, I don't know what day it was recorded. Well, it was June 21st, 1966. It was the last song the boys were working on for the Revolver album. Paul came in, they did three takes, and the story is Paul got into a fight with the other three Beatles the day they did She Said, She Said, and then he left the studio. And that's what Paul remembers, and in a book by Barry Miles, Paul actually says, you know, She Said, She Said might be the one Beatles song I'm not on, so that's where they all get this from. But, like I said earlier, Paul can be wrong sometimes. there were no bass overdubs on um, She Said, She Said. The boys played it three times, you know, as a run-through, two guitars, bass, and drums, and that was it. And then Paul got in a fight and left. So then, you know, that's where, like you said, where someone might want to argue with me or somebody will send me a letter and say, you know, Paul, uh, well, Paul doesn't play bass on She Said. And then I'll start, you know, a little dialogue. But that very rarely happens. Very
0: now, rarely. now, you're on <laughs> Sirius, as you said, was... Was your introduction, was that through, uh, I know, Little yeah. Steven, inter- you started with the, his station, was that your introduction through to Sirius, did that get you started yeah, with that?
1: Little Steven Van Zant, my hero and savior. Without Steven, I would have nothing. I owe everything to Steven Van Zant because he was a fan of breakfast with the Beatles, and he would come on the show, and he said, you know, you gotta, you gotta bring your show over to the underground garage. and I did, and that's where Breakfast in the was runs for a few years, and then there was this big lawsuit between Sirius XM and the guys from the Turtles, and there was all this, I don't know if you remember, there was this lawsuit about records pre-72 and post-72 and how they get paid for royalties and copyrights, and as a result of that lawsuit, we couldn't do any specialty shows revolving around 60s artists, so that's where it changed from me doing Breakfast of the Beatles in the Underground Garage to Chris Carter's British Invasion, which was a show that Stephen kind of invented for me so I could stay on the station. And, uh, that's really one of my most favorite things to do because not only do I get to play, you know, the Beatles and the Stones and the Kinks and the Who and the Small Faces and all that British Invasion stuff, I get to play all that stuff I told you earlier that I love so much, like all the, you know, glam bands from the 70s so I can mix up, you know, the Small Faces and the Who with David Bowie and T-Rex and then I can play like Blur and Oasis and Britpop Pop stuff and it's just all British, you know, all British rock and roll which is, you know, I've I'm in the and then I even had a segment called Americans, who deep, deep down wish they were British. And that way I can play any Americans who sound like the Beatles, like the Raspberries, or
0: any of that kind of stuff. Now, when I was in LA, I lived there for a long time. I used to, on Sundays flies in the car, I would listen to you, and you would be live from the Kobe Steakhouse. And I always <laughs> start there and said, all I could think was, was a bunch of people eating steak and eggs and drinking mimosas. What, what was it like recording there?
1: That's exactly it. You've got it. Um, it's We're still there, man, and now we've added the Morongo Casino Resort spot to my live performances. So twice a month we're live. The Kobe Steakhouse is like the cavern club, only like it's classy. It's like a classy cavern club with better food. Um, it's really dark with low ceilings, and I can't explain it, but, you know... I think for like seven years now, we've been sold out every time we've ever been there. There's a line when I pull up in the morning and these people just come in and have the greatest time because they can eat endless amounts of food, drink endless amounts of mimosas, or the drinks of their choice. You know, watch me do the show, we interact with the crowd. Um, They all leave with some sort of prize or something. It's just fun. It's just a lot of fun. It's become a thing, you know? People wait for three or four months to get to go, the waiting list. Like, they'll tell me, oh, yeah, we're sold out till December. I'm like, you're kidding. I can't even believe it. But it's great. I love it. It's fun. You know, it's tough for me. i got to show up and, you know, be on on a Sunday morning right. dressed and showered. And, you know, people <laughs> are staring at me for three hours. Isn't my... Favorite thing, but I've gotten used to it. You know, I love just doing radio, rolling out of bed and <laughs> going to the station and doing it. But this is, you know, you got to pretty yourself up because you're going to take pictures of all these, you know, Beatle fans,
0: which is great. I love them. But, now, you know, now, you've been DJing it. and you've been a musician, but you also produced the movie, I believe you're a producer. Oh, I wrote it, produced
1: it, did everything. It was it was my movie from the from the get go. I never made a movie ever before, and it was a true, true adventure. Uh, yeah, it was got Rodney Bingenheimer, the guy who broke Dramarama, and about a million other bands. And for whatever reason, Rodney had taken a liking to me when we moved here. I was his go-to guy in Dramarama, and you know Rodney would call me three times a day. 365 days a year. It was just like K-Rock playing anything, anything. <laughs> would call my house in the morning. We became really close friends. And I was fascinated by his, you know, Forest dump like Zelig lifestyle because here was this guy who had basically never finished high school and was just this little boy from, you know, Mountain View, California who loved rock and roll, and his mom dropped him off in Hollywood when he was 16 years old. It was, you know. Kind of a weird story, and he ended up, you know, hanging out and becoming what was called the mayor of the Sunset Strip. And you know, you call whoever you see on the street all the time the mayor of whatever town you live in because that guy's always hanging around. And there was Rodney. He was, you know, if every any any rock band showed up, you know, whether it was the Stones or whomever from England, David Bowie, they would meet Rodney because Rodney was there. He was just there hanging out. And uh, I just thought it was such a fascinating story. And uh, he's very eccentric, you know, he eats at the same place, at the same time, every day. It doesn't matter, you know, if it's Christmas, Thanksgiving, New Year's Eve, a snowstorm, a blackout. He'll still be at Cantor's at 11, 11 o'clock, eating the same meal, it doesn't matter. And uh, it's quite a story. And I knew I could get all these amazing pop culture people in the movie, and I, all I had to do was find a director, so I found this guy, George Heckenlooper, and uh, he was one of my favorites, uh, The Making of Apocalypse Now, it was called Hearts of Darkness, right. The Making of Apocalypse Now, and that was almost better than the real movie, <laughs> because it was showing you, you know, Martin Sheen has a nervous break. it's crazy, that movie, it's insane, and I loved it, and I was like, I want to get a guy who's not a rock and roll guy to make the movie. I wanted someone else's perspective. You know, I didn't want a rock guy like me. Um, I wanted someone who could look at his whole life differently. So he was a perfect fit. So I never made a movie and I found this guy and I, he agreed to do it. So it was just the two of us. We had no money. <laughs> and from there it took seven years and we made this movie and we got David Bowie in it. We got Cher in it. We have Courtney Love. We have the Ramones. We have Oasis, Alice Cooper. You name it, they're in that movie. Um, and in the course of the movie, Robbie's mom passes away and all these things happen and it was it became a really really nice film and we sold it for seven figures and at the time we sold that for it was the second highest selling documentary uh bowling for columbine was the first at the time of 2004 so it was a success we we sold it and uh you know, we won awards and we were nominated for an Independent Spirit Award and we won the Santa Barbara Film Festival and we the London Film Festival. My mom and dad saw it at Lincoln Center in New York City. It was really, it was a, it was a new experience for me, but now, it was a lot of fun.
0: In that movie, there's a scene where Rodney's all pissed off at you.
1: Explain what He's happened. He's yelling to at me in my own movie. I know. <laughs> I know. Well, I'll be honest with you. He was yelling at me for something else. (laughs) And George Chickalooper was filming it. And the way he edited it into the movie, it seems like he's yelling at me because I got my own radio show against his, which was true. But, you know, I loved radio. You know what I mean? I wasn't going to not get a radio show just because Rodney has a radio show. That's why I liked Rodney in the first place, because I loved radio. Um, But I did get the show. Remember, I told you it was a... Station competing with K Rock, and uh, I was literally on against Rodney on Sunday night. And uh, you know, that's the way it goes.
0: Now, and, uh, now your Breakfast of the Beatles airs on which station now?
1: We're on KLOS, um, and of course, now these days, you know, with iHeartRadio, you know, we're on everywhere, but we're on KLOS. Um, in Los Angeles here on FM radio. We're on Beatles Channel Monday through Friday mornings um, on Sirius XM. And Chris Carter's British Invasion is in Little um, Little Stephen's Underground Garage on both Saturday and Sunday. So I'm literally doing eight shows a week.
0: Okay. Well, I got a question for you. Um, I, I saw a posting on Facebook and I had friends from L.A. Did K-Rock change or something? Some station just changed because people were saying one of the stations just changed their format
1: yeah well 103.1 changed format but not I mean that was like seven eight months ago um, they were the other rock station that competed with KLOS um, they flipped and they went Christian um, rock is still the same unless something happened I didn't know about um, is this like a recent thing
0: you saw, Steve? I just saw a post today. Someone said, oh. and someone else was like, "Yeah, you know, my buddy's like, we used to listen to this band and this band." And I knew I was talking to you, so I wanted to find out because I know that the. Uh, you know,
1: what? I just I haven't seen anything today. No, so that doesn't mean it didn't happen. <laughs> I don't know. Um, I'm a little out of the loop it's so a...
0: far today. One final I question. Hope it wasn't KLS. No, it wasn't KLOS. <laughs> okay. One final question. I got one final question for you. As someone who's gone from. A musician in that time where the videos were very important and people bought albums, I believe you designed some of the album covers for Drama Sure. And so when someone is going through something that's so driven by album like we were, and who's someone's in radio where you're driven by Beatles fans with your albums, how did how have you seen the music culture and radio culture change since your start?
1: Well, like you say, everything was kind of rooted in albums back then. Um, albums were really important. And now, as you know, music has changed, and people aren't necessarily buying full albums or compact discs or any format that contains a lot of songs. It seems the way the music business is now driven is everything is like song orientated. You know, one song. Even if Paul McCartney's got a new album coming out, he releases one song first. Then he releases a second song. Then he releases a third song, then the album, or something like that. And the reason they do that is because I think in today's Culture and society and again the formats have changed where people aren't buying CDs really What do you do if you made an album now Steve? What would you do when I say an album a collection of songs? What would you do with it right would you make a CD? They don't even make CDs half the time Would you make vinyl that people are you know 13% of the population are buying and half of them don't open them? Um, you know so where do you put your music so the the, the theory is well? we'd be better off putting out one song first. So everybody can, it's kind of the old singles strategy, but people are releasing a song, like if, you know, some newbie, like Neil Young or somebody, some classic artist, they have a new album coming out, we'll put that song out first. Buy the song, 99 cents, twenty five, whatever it is. Because that's how you get people's attention. You put 14 songs out now, people, they don't know what to do. You know, they know, Which song, number four, do I like number 11? Do we play number nine? You have to, you know, tell them what to do. And then again, the real irony is, all these great bands who are the classic bands of rock, Pickett, you know, Aerosmith, whoever you want. If they make a new album, who plays it? <laughs> it's so weird. Tom Petty makes a new song, you know, before he passed away. Who plays it? KLS doesn't play it. They'll play, you know, his old songs, but they don't play the new songs. Bob Caesar makes a new album. Who plays it? It's a weird, it's so weird, you know, um, to be an artist in 2019, especially an older rock and roll artist, because everything is kind of not rock and roll anymore, if you noticed. I mean, how many rock records are in the Billboard
0: Hot 100 right now? Right. <laughs> I know, it's changed so much. So anyway, I, mean, I so want to thank...
1: A it's a different business now, you I, know.
0: I want to thank you for taking the time today. Now, can people follow you on social media? How can people get the information that yeah, you said earlier? Yeah, we've
1: got a Facebook page, and we have our website, BreakfastOfTheBeatles.com. We've got a new store, Steve, where we're selling great swag. We've got Breakfast of the Beatles cereal bowls and shot glasses and keychains and t-shirts and robes it's a scene over there so
0: visit that i'm gonna tell i, I have my bachelor party tonight but i'm over 50 so we're just going out for something to eat but my buddy oh, congratulations my, thanks, my buddy carrie steuben's picking me up and he's a huge beatles fan so i'm gonna send him to your store and he'll, oh,
1: please he'll do. buy
0: something so anyway people awesome. Check out Chris Carter, people. Go to my website, coopertalk.net. Uh, I have over 745 episodes up. You can find Cooper Talk on iTunes. Which listen to iTunes and do a review. I wasn't on there for a long time. You can go to Spotify, uh, Spotify, TuneIn, uh, Stitcher, all that stuff. Also, follow me on Twitter at coopertalk. Email me, cooper, at coopertalk.net. Remember, I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guests. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, and I'll talk to you next time.